He was a pre-med major. All of his life he said he'd wanted to be a cardiologist, and he had very good grades. He could probably get into medical school, but he was beginning to second-guess that decision. I said, okay, well, if you're not going into medicine, what do you think you're supposed to do? And he said, well, I'm wondering if I'm supposed to be a missionary. And I said, okay, why? What's, what's more appealing to you about being a missionary than going into medicine? And he said, well, I really want my life to count. And does the world need another cardiologist? I said, yeah, the world needs more cardiologists. Why do you think the world needs more missionaries? And what he ended up sharing with me was this sense of being a doctor doesn't really matter, ultimately. But sharing the gospel with people, transforming a society by planting churches or doing other kinds of ministry work, well, that ultimately matters, and that's why he was drawn to it. And the word that kept coming up over and over again in our conversation, at least from his end, was the word radical. He wanted to live more radically for Christ. He wanted to do something more radical with his life. He wanted to be more significant. That dilemma, I think, reveals something in us as Christians and as a society where we've somehow come to believe that the significant life is defined by how radical it is. And the only difference between those of us inside the church and people outside the church is how we define what is radical. So what I want to do is briefly take you through a story in the New Testament, in the Gospels, one that's probably familiar to many of you. It's a story that Jesus told, a parable in Luke 15, that I think helps us understand the way the world defines a radical life, and then the way the church defines a radical life, and I want to explain to you why they're both completely wrong, and that Jesus has an understanding of the radical life which is fundamentally different than probably one you've heard before, even from within the church. So the story is the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11 all the way through verse 32. I'm not going to read the whole text for you, although I encourage you, if you can later today or when you're alone or have some downtime, to read it and meditate on it yourself. There are so many layers and facets to that story. It's one of my favorites because I think it captures so much of the gospel and so much of what Jesus came to teach us. And I'm only going to briefly touch on a little bit of it, but let me recap the story for you, uh, though you are probably familiar with it. Jesus is with some dinner guests, and he tells them this story. He said, there's a man who had two sons, and the younger son was an idiot. He was a jerk. He's what, in my family, we refer to as a chotchball, somebody who just doesn't care about anyone but himself. The younger son goes to his father and essentially tells his dad to drop dead. I don't care about you. I don't care about this family. I don't care about your heritage or anything you've given me. All I want is my half of the inheritance so that I can go and spend that money the way I want to spend it. For reasons Jesus does not elaborate on in his story, the father agrees and he liquidates his part of the estate, gives the younger son his inheritance before he's died, which is beyond insulting in that culture, and the younger son goes off to a distant country where he spends all this wealth on self-indulgent wild living. In the story, this younger son for me sort of represents the way our culture defines a radical life. The way popular, consumeristic American culture defines a radical life is the one that is spent in relentless pursuit of your desires. Don't let anything get in your way. Don't let your family get in your way. Don't let any obstacle impede your dreams. Just go for it. YOLO, right? That's kind of the mantra of this generation. Pursue your dreams at any cost. 
That's the truly radical life. We tend to celebrate the stories of people who've you know, reached their dream and they tell us, just persevere, just stick with it. They don't tell you how many bodies are left under the bus that you drove to get to your dreams, but it doesn't matter because it was worth it. That's what defines a radical life. This younger son didn't care about his family, didn't care about his father, didn't care about any of those things. He just wanted to live how he wanted to live. There's some interesting studies that have come out recently about your generation. Generation Z, as you're known. I'm Gen X. Between us are the millennials. But Gen Z has some interesting characteristics that are just coming to the forefront now that you've reached adulthood. Not too long ago, there was a survey that asked different generations, mine, millennials, and yours, um, at different points when we were young, what do you want to accomplish before you're 30 years old? And some of that's pretty consistent across the generations. When I was in my early 20s, or my generation was in my early 20s, they asked, what do you want to do before you're 30? The two highest things were complete your education and start a career. That was true for Gen X, it was true for millennials, and it's also true for you, Gen Z. But what's changed is what caught my attention. The two things that have grown the most between millennials and your generation is this. Before I turn 30, I want to, quote, follow my dreams, which is 20 points higher for your generation than it was for the millennials. And this is the one that really caught my attention. Before I turn 30, I want to enjoy life before I have adult responsibilities. You guys are doing Peter Pan here, right? Right? One of the most famous lines from Peter Pan, I, don't, I haven't read it in a long, long time, but something like every child except one grows up. Your generation is doing its best to prove that wrong. <laughs> Your generation, more than any prior study generation in American history, is trying to delay growing up. You want to enjoy yourselves before you have adult responsibilities. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, except you're trying to push back those adult responsibilities as long as humanly possible. This is the way our culture defines the radical life. Selfish, self-indulgent, pursue your dreams and desires, don't let anything get in your way. Not even adulthood. Here's the problem with this. I mean, there's many problems with it, but let me just focus on one. When this is the message we've been marinating in our whole adolescence, and then we carry that definition of a radical life into our Christian faith, we end up believing that God exists also just to help us achieve our dreams and desires. I have a friend, from, a colleague from years ago who was a pastor in the South, and he used to jokingly say, you know, in America, we've made Jesus into the duct tape WD-40 combo pack. He's all you need to fix just about anything. We just employ him in our lives to help us accomplish our dreams and desires. Think about this younger son in the story. He goes to his father, doesn't care about his father, doesn't love his father, doesn't respect his father. What does he want from his father? He just wants the money, the means to achieve his dreams and desires. And sadly, that's how many of us, of all generations in America, tend to approach God. I don't care about God. I don't love God. I don't desire God. I want what I can get from God. Help me achieve my dreams and desires. Help me do better in school. Help me succeed in accomplishing my career goals. Help me be a better athlete. Help me get that boyfriend or girlfriend. Help me establish a 
loving, wonderful family. Help me be more wealthy, comfortable, and successful. Help me establish a more just, you know, righteous nation. We use God as a tool, a device for our politics, for our self-fulfillment, for our self-actualization to achieve our dreams. We are no different than the younger son who told his dad, drop dead. Just give me what I want. Even when the younger son in the story ends up blowing all of his money and ends up feeding pigs because he's got no economic prospects and there's a drought in that land, he finally comes to his senses and he decides to go home. He's like, all right, I'm going to go home and apologize to my father. And maybe he'll have mercy on me and at least make me a servant in his household while I'll have decent food and a roof over my head. So the son goes home, and you know the story. When the father sees him returning, he runs out to the son and embraces him and hugs him. He's so overjoyed to have him back. And the son begins to apologize. And in the story, it's very ambiguous in Jesus' telling whether the son is being genuine and sincere in his apology, or if he's just been humbled, but he's still looking for another handout from his father. Again, he doesn't really want his father, even in his return. He really wants a decent meal and a place to sleep. His desires have been humbled, but it's still very self-seeking. So that's the younger son, the culture, defining the radical life as selfishness and self-indulgence. But there's another son in the story, the older son. Turns out the father throws a party when the younger son comes home. He kills a fattened calf, which is what you did in the ancient world when you really want to celebrate. You have a big meal and a banquet. And there's this raucous party going on in the house. The older son is out in the field working hard. And as he drew near to the house, he hears all the commotion and he says to one of the servants, what's going on? And he says, your, your brother's come home. Your father's thrown a party for him. The older son is ticked angry. He refuses to go into the party. So the father goes out to the older son to beg him to come in and celebrate. And the older son says to his father, all these years I've served you. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. And I don't even get a party with my friends. But this son of yours comes home after he squandered all of your money on alcohol and prostitutes and you kill the fattened calf for him? Are you kidding me? The older son, for me, represents the way much of the American church defines the radical life. See, the younger son defined the radical life as what he could get from God to facilitate his dreams and desires. In much of the American church, we say, no, 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 don't do that. The truly radical Christian life is the one spent in service for God on mission for God, in obedience to God, out in the field working for God, doing all the things that God wants to see accomplished in the world. This is what that young man who came to me his junior year of college was asking about. I don't know if I should be a doctor, I should be a missionary, because if I'm a missionary, then I'm doing the stuff God really cares about, then my life will be significant, then I will be radical. This is the overwhelming message you get especially in American evangelical subculture. And you get it from people like me. You get it from pastors. You get it from missionaries. You get it from Christian workers. Many of us went into the careers we chose, frankly, to be totally brutally and honest with you, not because we're gifted, and some of us not even because we're called. We chose these lives because we wanted to be important. 
And what we were told is that if you want to be important in the Christian subculture, you need to be on a stage speaking. If you want to be important in the Christian subculture, you need to be out on the mission field converting non-Christians or planting churches. If you really want to be important as a Christian, you need to be out there changing the world in some significant, measurable way. Then you'll be significant. Anyone heard that before? Anyone feel that pressure? Or feel like a second-class citizen in the church because you're not going in that direction with your chosen career or vocation? This is so widespread in the American church, and this is what that young man was feeling. I have to do more for God in order to be valuable and important. There's multiple problems with this. Notice in the story, the older son, though he had spent all of his years out in the field working for his father, at the end of the day, he really wasn't that different than the younger son. Where's my party? Where's my affirmation? Where's my public acknowledgement of how great I am? He wasn't looking to indulge himself in sex and alcohol and drugs and wild living like the younger son, but he was still seeking to aggrandize himself and to meet his desires, but he was looking for acclaim. He was looking for attention and glory. That was his drug of choice. He also was simply using his father to accomplish his desires. This is the weird, twisted reality that exists in religious communities. It is just as easy to be an idolater as a minister as it is to be an idolater as a sinner. It is possible to make an idol out of the mission of the gospel. Years ago, I had a group of college students, this one at the beginning was not one of them, but a group of college students I'd meet with regularly on Saturday nights, Sunday nights, sorry. They were too busy on Saturday nights. Sunday nights. We used to gather in this office and um, these students were like you at a, at a Christian college um, but they wanted to meet with me and talk through struggles they were having with their faith. A lot of times doubts and issues that they didn't feel quite comfortable with engaging on campus or with some other leaders. And since I had no affiliation with the university, um, they felt I was kind of a safe place to do that. So we'd get together on Sunday nights and I didn't do a Bible study with them. I wasn't there to preach to them. They got enough of that already. I was there just to facilitate conversations that they wanted to have. And so we gathered one night and I said, oh, what do you guys want to talk about? And together they landed on the decision that they wanted to talk about the issue of habitual sin. And that sounded juicy and exciting, so I said, sure, let's talk about that. This is a group of about 10 or 12 students, both men and women, and as the conversation was going on about habitual sin, meaning ongoing struggles with, with sin, I finally said to this group at the table, um, I want you guys to go around and answer this one question for me. In the midst of your struggle with sin, whatever it is, and you don't have to share details of what it is, but whatever that struggle is, how does God view you? And the first young woman began to share. She said that she grew up as a missionary kid overseas. Her parents, a generation earlier, had been students at the same college where she was. And when they were students there, a revival broke out on campus, and in response to this revival, her parents committed to being missionaries, and so she grew up overseas. She said, I had this wonderful family, incredible Christian community. I saw God do incredible things overseas in this country where I grew up. And she said, now I'm a student at the same school 
And how is God ever going to use me the way he used my parents if I'm still struggling with sin the way I am? Another student shared. He quoted scripture. To whom much is given, much is expected. And God has given me so much and he expects more from me. But how can I do that when I've got this sin in my life? And one by one, they all shared, probably took 45 minutes to get around the table, some of them in tears, crying. And in one form or another, they all had the same response. God's disappointed with me. God's frustrated with me. God expects more from me. How can I really change the world? How can I impact blah, 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 the gospel and his kingdom because of all the issues I'm struggling with and my sin? And so I'm listening to this for close to an hour. Finally, it gets back around to me. And I asked them, how many of you grew up in a family where your parents were believers? They all raised their hand. I said, how many of you grew up in a church where the scriptures were taught and the gospel was preached? They all raised their hand. That's when my heart really broke. And I told them this. I said, what's so shocking to me is here you are 18 to 22 years old, you spent the whole life in Christian homes, whole life in the church, and now you're at a Christian university, and not one of you gave the right answer. It didn't occur to a single one of you that in the midst of your sin, God loves you. Why not? They'd been singing it since they were in diapers in the church nursery, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. So why wasn't that at the top of their mind? Because the real message they had internalized from two decades in the American evangelical subculture was not that God loves them. The message they had really internalized was that God wants to use them. And even the presence or absence of sin in their life was all seen through the lens of how useful am I to God in impacting the world and accomplishing his mission. They had been completely shaped by a vision of the radical Christian life, which was all about serving God out in the field. Define it however you like. What we do in a lot of the American church is we take younger sons and we make them into older sons. We make you feel bad about pursuing your desires and make you feel better when you start pursuing the things God wants. Let me tell you something. Dirty little secret. God does not need you to achieve his purposes. If he did, he would be a pathetic God completely unworthy of our worship. Any God that needs me or you is not worth following. He does not need you. He wants you. And that makes all the difference in the world. So we have these two competing definitions of the radical life. Selfish, self-indulgent, pursue your dreams, YOLO, all that stuff, and get on mission for God. Go change the world. Do more for him out in the field, and then you'll be significant and prove your value. Neither one of these are the radical life Jesus calls us to. So what is? At the end of the parable, the father finally speaks. And in his response to the older son, the entire story begins to make sense and the father's behavior in it. He says to the older son, 
All these years you've been with me, and everything I have is yours. But this brother of yours was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive again. A couple things to notice about the father's response. Number one, he never even acknowledges the older son's service. He doesn't say, hey, in all these years you've served me and you've done a ton of work out in the fields here and you've managed the household really well and I'm really grateful for that. Thank you for all your obedience and hard work. Never even acknowledges it. Instead, he says, all these years you've been with me. And with that brief sentence, it all begins to make sense. You see, what the father has cared about is not the older son's service and obedience all those years. What he's cared about is he's had his son with him. And that then explains why the father ran out and embraced his chotchball younger son when he saw him coming home. He ran out and embraced him because what the father cared most about was having his boy back home with him. In other words, what God the father cares most about is not your sinfulness, nor is it your obedience. What he cares most about is your presence. That is why Jesus came, why he lived among us, why he died on the cross for our sins and rose again, so that he might reconcile us to God, that we might be once again call, be called his children. He didn't redeem you so that he could use you to achieve something in the world that he couldn't do without you. He redeemed you because he wants you back home. That's what this parable is all about. It's understanding the true heart of our Heavenly Father. That what He desires is our communion with Him more than anything else. Which finally brings us back round to prayer. The word radical comes from the Latin word radicalis. And that means root. That's where you get the word radish from. Radish is a root. Radical, it's rooted. The truly radical Christian life is not the one spent using God to achieve your dreams and desires, nor is it the one spent out on the mission field for God changing the world. If he's called you to do that, by all means do it, but that's not what defines a radical Christian life. The truly radical life, the truly rooted Christian life is the one that is spent in deep, abiding, unending communion with God right where you are. If nothing about the circumstances of your life ever change, if you never leave Minnesota, if you never get married, if you never have children, if you never have an earth-shattering career, if none of those things ever happen, you are completely equipped to live the most radical Christian life imaginable because all that's required is to live deeply in communion with Christ right where you are. And that is offered to every single one of us. Which means the truly radical life is the life of prayer. Of unending, continual communion in the presence of God. Prayer is not just communication. Prayer is not just talking to God. Prayer is not just asking God for things. It is all those things, but none of that captures the fullness of what prayer is. Prayer at its deepest, simplest, is rootedness, it's abiding in the presence of God, an awareness that he is with us in all things. Jesus went off to the 
solitude of the mountainside or the wilderness to commune with his father in prayer numerous times throughout the gospels. And that's a good model that we ought to do that as well, to seek solitude and time alone with him. But let me ask you, when Jesus came back from those times of solitude to engage in preaching and teaching and healing and all the other acts of ministry he was called to do, do you think his communion with God was any less intact then? Of course not. He said, it is my food, my bread, to do what I see my father doing. He lived in perpetual communion with his father. This is an idea that Thomas Kelly, an old Christian author, talked about. He called it simultaneity. It's a fancy way of saying to live your life on two levels at the same time. Let me share a quote from Kelly. He said this, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs, but deep within, behind the scenes, at a more profound level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. The secular world of today values and cultivates only the first level, believing this is where the real business of mankind is done. But we know that the deep level of prayer is the most important thing in the world. It is at this deep level that the real business of life is determined. Here's my simple message as I get this thing off my shoe. You don't have to change anything about your circumstances to experience the fullness of a radical Christian life. Whatever your major is, whatever your career plans are, whatever struggles you may have, whatever sin is present in your life, whatever dreams and goals you have which may or may not come to fruition, you can experience the fullness of the Christian life right where you are. If you learn to cultivate a deep, abiding never-ending communion with God. Most people throughout human history have not had vocational options. If your father was a fisherman, guess what? If you're a man, you're a fisherman. And throughout most of history, and in sadly most parts of the world today, if you're a woman, you had no career options at all. Does that mean the fullness of the Christian life wasn't available to most people throughout history because they couldn't change their circumstances or careers? course not. The problem is in the modern world, in the modern church, in the modern consumeristic society, we've come to redefine the radical life by circumstance rather than communion. So, sisters and brothers, I want you to seriously consider who or what has defined the radical life for you. How have you been shaped to be like that younger son? To believe that the goal is to never grow up, to pursue your desires and dreams, to throw anything and anyone that gets in your way under the bus, including God? Or have you allowed your imagination of a radical life to be shaped by a somewhat off-track evangelical subculture in America, which says it's all about changing the world, changing your circumstances, getting on mission? As good as those things are, they're not the ultimate thing. Or are you willing to open up your mind and allow Christ himself to change your vision of the radical life. To be so filled with a vision of his beauty and goodness and power that what you desire more than anything else is not to use Jesus, nor to be used by him, but to live in communion with him. 
My hope is that you'll remember before you are called to something or to some place, you are first and foremost called to someone. And we live that calling in prayer. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you run out and meet us where we are, embrace us as we are, as broken and sinful as we are. And Father, we're grateful that you even meet us in our field of arrogance and pride where we think we are so important and you remind us that what matters most to you is not our service but our presence. For those struggling here today on either side of this misdefinition of radical, I pray that you would graciously meet them. May they hear you again call you, call them your precious daughter, your precious son. Lord, I pray that you would remove the obstacles that have gotten in our way of developing a deep communion with you. Surround us with sisters and brothers who can help us see you more clearly and with godly mothers and fathers in the faith who can walk toward us and lead us in the way of prayer. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.